Good afternoon. Welcome to Navara FM here on London's number one radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter, and I'm joined by senior editor of Navara Media, James Butler, at Pierce Penland. Hi, James. Hi. A Fox News poll released last night shows Bernie Sanders polling ahead of Hillary Clinton nationally. For the very first time, that poll shows Sanders with 47% compared to Clinton's 44. Sanders is up 10 since January, Clinton down by 5. After Sanders' primary win in New Hampshire last week, the Senator for Vermont is confounding his critics. And while he's not the favourite, at least not yet, he could still very possibly conspire to be the Democratic nominee. What's beyond doubt is that his campaign is redefining progressive America and, more immediately, the nature of any potential Clinton presidency next year. While it's easy to draw parallels between the rise of Sanders in the US and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, what we want to talk about today, beyond both of them just sort of electrifying their respective parties' internal elections and the national conversations around austerity class and capitalism, they also don't share a hell of a lot as well. So we're going to try and, I guess, mm. touch upon all of that. Similarities, differences. The UK and the US, they share a common language, but there are also many things they don't share. So, James... I'll uh, I'll start with you. For better or worse, UK US context, which is more amenable to the rise of a potentially radical politician, to a potentially anti-austerity politician? Uh, let's start with a really easy question: Can Sanders win? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is a bold assertion, actually, and I'm not certain of it. Uh, I, and I would have been certain of it six months ago, uh, and I think that's important. Uh, the the current political cri- climate really defies expectation in a lot of ways. Uh, the the one thing I can say about many of the political predictions and many of the political certainty, certainties in the run-up to this election, as before the Labour Party internal election here, is that they were simply wrong. Um, and so, so it's wise to have some kind of humility about making Absolutely, these predictions. Yeah. What I would say is that the Democratic Party in the United States is uh, even more corrupt and less democratic than the Labour Party in the UK. Uh, and that, that's important. Uh, it is important in, in determining, you know, my expectation is that the, the Democratic, uh, Democratic establishment, uh, should Sanders look like he's winning the nomination, will find a way to uh, influence the number of ballots in a ballot box. Um, and I think, that, <laughs> I, think, I think that's something we should be aware of. However, it is also true that, that, that most of these people are established and quite canny political operatives uh, and are well-learned in the art of recuperation. And if they see the political w- weather blowing in a particular way, they may well choose to bend with it rather than break in the gust. Uh, and I think that, that matters. I mean, AFL-CIO, the US biggest unions haven't come out yet, yeah. which would suggest they're holding their cards very close to their chest. Them coming out for Bernie Sanders would be huge, I Yes, think. it would. I mean, In terms that, of actual activists, yeah. would be... A big, that, that, would, that would change the political weather quite decisively, yeah. I think. That would be big. Um, and also, I think Sanders has got the option of going nuclear, right? Which is, he would run as an independent. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and that would almost certainly see him losing. Uh, well, yes. 1992, Ross Perot got, I think, something like 20% of the vote in the US. Yeah. Won no electoral colleges. Yeah, just like UKIP won three and a half million votes here, got one MP in last May's general election, a similar kind of electoral mm. system in the US. He obviously wouldn't win, but I think he would probably stop a Democrat entering the White House. That would yeah. have to be a concern, wouldn't it, for yeah. the Democrat establishment? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, it would garner him a lot of hatred, particularly if uh, if Trump were the Republican candidate. Um, yes, it's a possibility. I don't. I think it's unlikely that he would do it. Actually, I mean. Uh, but that's the leverage, it's, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's the leverage. Um, I mean, it's also the leverage that Trump has in the Republican mm. race, and Trump can self-fund a, 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 a solo a third-party run. Mm. There's also, of course, Bloomberg, who's sort of 
uh, pricking his ears up at the possibility that I mean, you know, if if you know, Bloomberg is a member of the political establishment, if we were to see a say Trump Sanders uh, presidential race, which is n- not outside of the realms of possibility, although I think it's extremely unlikely. Uh, as I said, I still think it's unlikely that Sanders is likely is likely to be anywhere near the Democratic nom- nomination. Um, that, that's, that's when you will see these third-party candidates really sort You'd of... You'd have to buy a television, wouldn't you? Here. If it was I, Sanders uh, <laughs> Trump. <laughs> I, would, I would be tempted. I would be tempted. We'd have to crowdfund a sort of 50-inch 4K <laughs> HD television for James Butler. So one of the, one of the things to say here is, is, that, uh, is whether, whether it is useful for us to be interested in American politics. And uh, for a long time, American politics politics had a particular attraction for sort of British political nerds. Uh, and it's sort of strange. It's partly a generational thing, uh, a generation raised on that sort of rather dreadful Aaron Sorkin drama, The West Wing. Um, it's partly a generation attracted to politics with far greater international stakes as children of a declining and then vanishing empire. Uh, and it's people who are attracted to politics within a republic as well. And it's one of the things you mentioned, the electoral college there. One of the things we'll come on to talk about is exactly the structure of American politics, which is which is strange and, and changing and indeed has changed over the course of the 20th century quite significantly. Um, Oddly enough, uh, American political theorists tend to be more interested in the European Union, uh, partly because the the American political system is so uh, is so paralysed, actually, in a lot of ways. So, uh, it, but it, it is important to us in another sense, in that the the American president is also the chief executive of the committee of the international bourgeoisie. He or she, and for the first time, there's a distinct possibility that uh, the president may be a she, uh, is also the chief executive. Of the, is it, you know. Uh, <laughs> They, they set uh, the direction of, of international affairs. Uh, and I don't mean just personality-wise, although personality does mat- matter in the American presidency. But it, it, we're also, we also should be talking about the constellation of forces that go into making up the presidential campaign. Uh, and after the Citizens United ruling uh, about the, the amount of sort of big money that, that really goes into it. And we'll talk about exactly how much, how much money uh, Hillary Clinton is is sort of... Uh, funneling into into her campaign, I and mean, it's really an extraordinary, almost mind-boggling amount. Um, the other factor is, of course, the relationship of, of presidential politics to the big social movements that are kicking off in the United States, particularly uh, around Black Lives Matter. Uh, and that relationship has been fraught and complex, and is not is not at all it's not at all clear to me that that uh, it's predictable. Yeah. Uh, the other major contingency, of course, is the death of Antonin Scalia and the, the likelihood of the next. But I'm, I find it unlikely that the, that the sitting president, Obama, will be able to feel, fill uh, the seat on the Supreme Court vacated by Antonin Scalia, uh, which has a huge jurisprudential Hugely important, impact. right? Most important yeah. you know, judicial body in the world, really. Yeah. Um, a lot of sovereignty rests, you know, arguably it's judiciary sovereignty, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of power rests with uh, unelected people in the United States, i.e. judges on the Supreme Court. Before we move on, this thing about, we're talking about Black Lives Matter and so on. A few people have been saying, like, Sanders is racist. He's not good on race. He, he, he puts class in a different way to Black Lives Matter, right? So he'll say class is what matters, fine. And he relegates race as something that striates class. I disagree with that, actually. I think you'd probably disagree with that in the, mm. US, in the United States context. But then you've got a lot of people saying he's racist. Now, let's just get this straight. This is a guy who was arrested in a city in 1962, the year of the Freedom Rides. year later, 1963, in Washington by the Capitol, Martin Luther said, I have a dream. I might not get there with you. Bernie Sanders was there. Barack Obama was two years old. 
Bernie Sanders was standing there in 1963. Mm. He backed Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88 for the Democratic nomination for president. Okay, He was assaulted whilst campaigning for Jesse Jackson by other white people. Have a bit of respect. If you don't know much about somebody, you know, don't call them a racist. You know? It's so easy to go on Twitter or Facebook and just say, this person's a racist. Have a bit of respect. You know, he's 74 years old. He's done a bit. People like him have made the world a much better place over the course of the last 20, you know, yeah, sort of mean, 20, 30 years. I, well, I, I just had to get that out of there. I'm I, sorry. I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think he's a racist. But, but what I would say, uh, and uh, so, for instance, Alexander Coburn, who died uh, last year, the year before last year, I don't recall. Um, he, he's a columnist and you know, a left-wing journalist. But very rarely wasted an opportunity to go for Bernie Sanders, partly because Sanders is this kind of liminal figure for the American left, uh, you know, sort of inside, sort of outside. We can talk about that insider-outsiderism a bit because it's one of the things that differentiates Corbyn from Sanders, actually. Mm. Um, and, you know, because Coburn, Coburn uh, points out that, you know, it's essentially a sellout to the democratic machine. Mm. Uh, he's, a, you know, the sort of gun-toting. Chris uh, Hedges uh, says the same thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, the, you know, he's, and particularly his sort of foreign policy mm. history backs interventions in Yugoslavia, uh, Afghanistan, uh, really pretty, like, you know, reliably tends to support Israel, um, which is, of course, uh, a matter that will divide him from the sort of extra democratic left within yep. within the United States. Um, you know, it is pretty it will pretty much tend to roll over on uh, appropriations by the Pentagon. Uh, didn't seem to raise much objection to the deployment of drones in the Middle East, changing perhaps a bit now. Um, so, I mean, you know, his record is not is not perhaps that a, of uh, what you would expect a, a left wing sort of foreign policy deployment. Whether it would have been possible for him to be in the United States Senate and do that, that's a, a question of political realism. This is one of the, the places where, uh, where, where the US and the UK are, are really different and where, where Corbyn and Sanders are actually very, very different. I mean, Obama was against the war, right? Obama was against the war. He'd yeah. only been a senator since 2004. You know, he was a freshman senator. He basically announced his candidacy in 2007, which is just unbelievable, right? Three years mm. into being in the Senate, you run for the presidency. He was a state senator before that so he was just a bum basically he was a nobody guy no but it's like being a councillor or something well, I mean it's, it's more significant than being a councillor and I think the relationship between the okay. states and the federal government in the United sure. States is but partly but the point uh, is it doesn't matter what your opinion is about these things if you're a state senator fundamentally uh, yeah sure right yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so he had that luxury very few people could, right now the top level of politics weren't in one of those kinds of bodies mm. as recently as 2002, 3, 4, Barack Obama had the kind of, you know, he's the extraordinary kind of confluence of, you know, yes, an exuberantly intelligent young man at the time. And also he had the, you know, the Marzi to run three years after mm. being in the Senate. And, you know, well done him. It worked out very well, obviously. Not many people have that. And I mean, Bernie Sanders, you know, I mean, you won't find anybody that was in the Senate or in Congress who didn't, I think, go with Yugoslavia. I think... Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd have to look at the record. I don't know. I mean, you know... Um, anyway, you know, sorry. But that's, I mean, that's, that's... I mean, that's... I think these are legitimate critiques. Absolutely. And I think they're critiques that should be part of Absolutely. the conversation. I mean, Black Lives Matter protesters have disrupted Sanders' campaign events. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, sort of... Who tends to bridge the kind of more sort of left-wing... 
uh, and, and sort of liberal elements of, of these of the sort of current civil rights movement. Uh, he, he's also said that he's also you know raised questions about Sanders' lack of support for reparations. And, but now he's but, backing him. But says he will vote for him. Yeah, mm. and I think I think that's you know that the, there is a sense here that, that Sanders is taking this conversation seriously. Um, you know, the, and these these criticisms, I think matter and uh you know uh, they are of substance and they are you know they're, they're things that should be taken seriously the attacks however on Sanders <laughs> from the Clinton campaign and the the sort of pro Clinton center have been really vacuous I mean they're astonishing in their lack of political substance and mm. that that I think is also interesting I mean you know there's uh, Paul Krugman uh, calls him a sort of fantasist I think um you know the, and this idea this rather persistent idea that is a transatlantic idea that the supporters of Bernie Sanders in this case, or Jeremy Corbyn here, are fantasists or, or, or attracted to a kind of millenarian purity, mm. uh, which is, I mean, you know, it, it strikes me as the one thing that is actually not true is that is it's precisely, you know, the number of people who are, particularly true in the UK, I mean, obviously I know the UK context a lot better and I know people on the ground much better here. Um, you know, it strikes me that many of the supporters of, uh, you know, the Corbynite supporters here are people who are getting to sense with political realism, actually, and to, a, you know, to a degree that... that that you know are, are far more willing to make compromises about their their politics or their politi- their historical political background um, than than sort of <laughs> than most uh, most other people in mainstream politics. David Aronovich, I mean, what does he know about realist yeah, politics right. realistically? Right, yeah. uh, talking about sort of the Clintons, and of course, right now everybody says, well, the minority vote is backing Hillary over Bernie Sanders. I think you'll win Latinos. Actually, blacks is kind of you know black American African Americans is less less obvious. Latinos, I think he's he, uh, Clinton was leading by ten in January. I think she'll lose that. She was leading massively amongst African Americans. I think that will probably go as well. Although she'll keep some, something of a majority. The question is why? You know, I mean, her, her husband was on Arsenio Hall playing the saxophone twenty five years Gosh, ago or something. Yes. I mean, that's not good enough now, right? I mean, Bill Clinton <laughs> incarcerated. Whether it was good enough, then. Bill Clinton incarcerated. Well, this is before he was a president, right? You know, as an open. You know, as a sort of blank canvas, blank canvas. Bill Clinton incarcerated more African Americans yeah. than every single U.S. president that came before him. Yeah, and Michelle Alexander, I mean, who wrote an extraordinary book, The New Jim Crow, yeah. about precisely this, yeah. has has been very, very strong and vocal on her criticisms of Hillary Clinton. I recommend people search out the stuff that she's been writing on that. It's really, really strong. For those that don't know this, you know, Clinton before Barack Obama, you know, people were calling this guy the first black president yeah. because he could play the saxophone. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is just extraordinary. It's a sign of hope. Racial politics have uh, come a long way in the mainstream, I think, since uh, since, since Clinton. It says a lot, um, right? You're yeah. absolutely right. Uh, Go on. One of the things I wanted to say is, is maybe delineate some of the political differences or, or the contextual differences between Sanders and Corbyn, right? I mean, uh, you know, this, it, superficially they look very similar. They're sort of, uh, uh, sort of outsider old men. Grumpy. Who, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Corbyn is sort of, you know, almost sort guy. of... He's uh, pretty grumpy. Yeah, no, I know. But, but <laughs> his public image is of a sort of bodhisattva-like purity and compassion anyway. Um <laughs> But, the, you know, uh, there is an insider and outsider difference here. Like Sanders is a genuine outsider to the Democratic Party. Yeah. He wasn't a Democrat until last year. He joined the party to run for the leadership. Mm. American parties work a little differently um, to, to ours. Um, but, 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 you know, Corbyn is an insider to the Labour Party. And it's partly here there's a difference in political structure between the two countries. There is and has always historically been an extra Labour left. There's been parties and groupings to the left of Labour that have existed. Um, and that there is a, a kind of clear and distinct line, more distinct these days, I think, um, you know, between between Labour and, and, and those to the left outside of it. Um, 
this is this is less true of the United States, certainly less true of the United States in the period in which Sanders has been in politics. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, students for democratic society, right? Yeah, I mean, 60s. you know, and I'm I'm thinking all the way back to actually one of the figures that 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 Sanders reminds me of, Eugene V. Debs, yeah. Socialist Party candidate yeah. for president in 1906. Yeah. Um, but 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 you know Corbyn is actually an insider to the Labour Party. He's been in the Labour Party for many years. He's a member of a, uh, a rather much maligned and uh, relatively powerless for the last few decades, but nonetheless existent faction in the Labour Party. On the other hand, Sanders very clearly, you know. Uh, volitionally, uh, a, you know, undertook a presidential campaign, joined, uh, you know, really, really uh, remarkable uh, energy and dedication to the cause. Corbyn kind of fell into the leadership of the Labour Party. It, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't think anyone, including the man himself, realistically expected him, uh, even really, to make uh, to make the, the 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 election itself, let alone win it. Well, Sanders' career is like a sort of one person, he happens to be a man, so I'll say one man, one man sort of Gramscian strategy, right? Because <laughs> student stuff happens in the mid-late 60s. Yeah. He then moves to Vermont. He basically moves to the one state where anybody's going to elect him to anything, mm. Most, mm. Progress- most progressive voting state. He then becomes mayor of Burlington, this kind of little town in Vermont. He then becomes, I think, he became mayor of Burlington, then he was, I think, was governor of Vermont, or I don't know. And then he became the senator of Vermont. He was the longest mm. serving independent mm. senator in United States history. Again, no other, no other, you know, nowhere else but Vermont would have had this guy for senator. So he built a. He wasn't from there, right? He's from Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. So he literally chose, you know, forty years ago to move to the one part of the country where, which at that time had, you know, a little bit of kind of his politics had a bit of truck, right? And he's gradually, slowly but surely, built credibility, resources, networks, and now he joined, like you said, Democratic Party, I think last November. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Three months ago. <laughs> yeah. People in the Labour Party sort of joined, you know, it's like Corbyn, all these new people joining, all these outsiders. Imagine being a Democrat right now. Mm. And sort of Democrat lackey yeah, for like I mean, 30 one, years. One of the things that, that actually that they do have in common is <clears throat> relatively few uh, allies within the party itself. Mm. Um, I mean... Uh, Sanders has Liz Warren, who in some ways sort of prepared the way for him. She's very personable. Uh, she's done a sort of really impressive balancing act in terms of sort of mainstream politics and, you know, what what might have been conventional historical <laughs> uh, democratic critiques rather than socialist ones. Um, anyway, um, you know, Corbyn also have relatively few allies within the Labour Party, as I think is very clear to pretty much everyone. Um, one of the things to say is, is perhaps a little bit about Sanders' own political position now. Sanders builds himself as a democratic socialist. Um, that itself, that someone calling themselves a socialist can be, a, you know, a can, you know, like, you know, po- you know, within grasp of candidacy for the American presidency is something. <laughs> I mean, would if someone had said <clears throat> this to you five years ago, would you have said it was possible? I mean, America, Amer- you know, the, the hostility towards like socialism within the American political sphere is immense. Well, I mean, we, what I we, think this we did a show three years ago, right? Yeah, about, yeah. But we never would have said that. Yeah, we would have said well, what, you'd have to sort of lie yeah, about that politics. Yeah, 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 really. exactly. What I think this tells you is there's something you know about the the end of the sort of uh, communist era. 
right? So the the end of there there being a sort of you know the the association between words like socialism and say Soviet communism. Uh, the you know the the other pole of the Cold War than the United States. I think the word is undergoing a redefinition, um, and there, there's you know various currents that account for that. Nonetheless, and and let us let us be clear that American socialism has always had a you know connected to its European antecedents, but is has always been a little sui generis, um, you know, self generated, uh, responding to the context of American politics itself. Always a little bit distinct from. But one of the things that that you know uh, that Sanders reminds me of is less of the history of American socialism, which includes things like the IWW, um, and more uh, like a New Deal Democrat, actually. Mm. Very much reminds me of that swing of the pendulum uh, in the early 1930s, away from the huge inequality of the 1920s. I mean, I think Sanders is less interested in the traditional shibboleths of socialism, the common ownership of the means of production, than in addressing exactly that issue of inequality and of, frankly, American oligarchy. Um, and and that, that, I think, is, is quite important to grasp when, you, when trying to understand his political position. Well, if you ever look at sort of any sort of speeches made by FDR when he was seeking re-election, you know, I'm going to pull up some quotes here, you know, let me get some quotes... It, yeah, I can't remember the verbatim, but he literally said his stump speech, basically, when he was seeking re-election after obviously beginning the New Deal, he said, judge me by my enemies, by which he meant Wall mm, Street. Mm-mm. And that, that was good enough. Mm. And, you know, I think, yeah, Sanders almost is just cherry picking some of FDR's yeah, yeah, yeah. big lines, his, yeah, I mean, his big frames, he, which is Wall Street, the, the billionaire class. <laughs> he, really, he really does strike me as, as much closer to, yeah. to that kind of thing. Because, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, Sanders is very short on, on saying, you know, exactly how he would govern. And that's fine. I mean, the, the, it's, it, will be, it would be difficult for him, right? I mean, he would, he would face... You know, the other thing that is not talked about, actually, in, 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 this, in discussions on the, on the left outside of the United States um, about this forthcoming election is that the Senate is up for grabs as well. And that will be really significant. The House, um, the lower, which is the lower part of the American legislature will probably remain in Republican control unless we were to see a really enormous landslide of Democratic votes. But um, what is coming up is is an opportunity to, to regain control of the Senate. That is possible. And that, that would be really very significant, actually. That would that would allow... I mean, let us assume... We've mentioned the Supreme Court on the show. Mm. Um, let's assume, as I think is likely, um, that uh, Obama doesn't manage to pass any candidate through the Senate. Um, that, that seems pretty pro- probable. So the, 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 uh, if people don't know, what has to happen is uh, uh, essentially a candidate has to be, is appointed by the president and then has to be approved by the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, th- and that would require, I think, 14 Republicans, um, yeah. 14 Republican senators to... I mean, I think yeah. Obama wanted the position, basically, right? I mean, I think, uh, yeah. It's been great. Uh, if, the, if this guy died a year later... Well, I mean, yeah... And, but the other thing to say is that look, the 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 liberal justices on the Supreme Court are all aging. Yeah, well, they're, 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 that's they're, how you leave this thing. Is you die, right? <laughs> I mean, you can retire, but it's uh, it's uh, people tend to die. Um, the the uh, so the next presidential candidate has. Uh, the, the candidate for the next presidency has a really strong opportunity to remake uh, this extremely powerful institution yeah. in American society, yeah. extremely powerful institution I mean, in, in, in the image of their politics. Yeah. Um, so, so that's really, really important. And it's one of the... Clinton will use this. Clinton, the median age is like 70 plus, yeah. right? Clinton will use this to say, 
I, you must make me a candidate because I can get compromised candidates through the Senate. Bernie Sanders can't. Yeah. Uh, and that, that will be a huge part. Depends of what the Senate looks discussion. like. I was, yeah. I was just going to uh, quickly say to you, because you're, this is, you, it's a unique opportunity. All these elections are on the same day. In two thousand, It's going to be November mm. 2016. The presidential election is always in November. It has been since 1770, God knows what. Um, everybody's always said, we've always, you know, said on this show for a long time, look at US politics moving so far left since 2004, same-sex marriage, um, decriminalization of uh, certain drugs. Um, you know, I think it was in June now, basically. It's a federal thing now. Same-sex marriage is a thing in the US. States can't defy that. A whole bunch of things in terms of, in terms of public attitudes. Look at Pew studies on this. Year by year, the US is becoming more progressive on pretty much every single issue. Trans rights, you know, everything. But then people say, but Aaron... Look, look at Congress, yeah? Look at the House of Representatives, look at the Senate. They're both Republican-controlled. That's because they have low turnout. Hmm. Where there's a high turnout election, the presidential election, Democrats do really well. If this year means that there's a high turnout for Congress, this could be a really unique opportunity for whoever takes the White House, right? Yeah. Really historic opportunity. Sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think we should should come on to talk, I, I mean, I suppose a little about the relationship between such things and, and uh, sort of extra-parliamentary. Uh, or sort of, uh, yeah, go ahead. I wanted to talk about, uh, here's a hypothesis and you can respond to it. I would say that one thing these these guys do share is that they need to mobilise the same coalition of interests um, and that that, to a certain extent, could um, sort of intersect with really significant demographic changes we're seeing, Mm. which are Mm. sort of indisputable, right? So... Why Sana is doing what he's doing? He's getting out the under 35s. He's now winning women. He would obviously win women over against a Republican, but he's even winning women against Hillary, which is incredible, and, and ethnic minorities. These, mm. the, this was what Obama was calling the coalition. This is yeah. what brought him to the White House. By the way, 2008 was a huge win. He was winning states like South Carolina, New Mexico. These aren't states that anybody was meant to win after George W. had two terms. It was a big about turn, and that was the coalition. A similar coalition would have to be mobilised here by Corbyn if he was going to win, and that would require a big voter turnout increase. Voter turnout increase to 2000, Al Gore loses. Obama wins in 2008. Voter turnout has gone up by 7 or 8%. Corbyn, to become Prime Minister in 2020, would have to do something similar, and it would have to be under 35s women, ethnic minorities. That's my uh, hypothesis. But by extension of that, I would say that the coalition, the other coalition that propped up Reagan, George Bush's father, George Bush Sr., and George W., the Christian right, Mm. big business, um, you know, sort of poorer white working class, but sort of more conservative ideologically, that yeah. goes over yeah. with the Christian right, basically in the United States to some extent, non-urban, um, sort of rural America. That coalition in the US has two problems. One is it now has an internal contradiction after the great crisis. White working class Americans who don't live in big cities now don't like big banks. Yeah, That was the big thing for the right. They had these weird interests coming together. At no problem, right? Because there was no tension before 2008. Now there is... Also, there's a demographic problem, right? The US, majority minority. Majority, minority. Um, that means that white people become an ethnic minority, if you don't include Latinos, by 2043. Mm-hmm. I think with ba- new babies, it's going to become majority minority in 2019. So most babies born in the United States in three years won't be white. So given people of color don't vote Republican, unless they think very dramatic changes, Republicans aren't going back to the White House anytime soon, right? And mm. um, this has been in the making for so long that Republicans have lost five of the last six popular votes. So my, I think my claim is this. 
is the right coalition of Reagan, George Bush, Margaret Thatcher, potentially David Cameron, they share a similar coalition of interests. Is that suffering the same problems here that it suffered in the US? Mm, and an, what if not, why not? Because it doesn't seem like it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting one. I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's a very hard question to answer. I, I, I think there, there is... Okay, so let's talk about political structure and let's talk about the Labour Party, actually. The Labour Party is very different to... to not, only, not only most parties of Labour within Europe... Um, most of the sort of parties that emerged from the sort of labour movements of the late 19th century, early 20th century, but is you know also very different to the Democratic Party. The Labour Party in England is very very bureaucratised. Has a it has a the, the famous trade union link, uh, the, the sort of thing that animates Owen Jones in the mornings. Um, so that's what keeps him looking so young. <laughs> you know that. Yeah, well, yes, the elixir of youth. Some sort of, some sort of deal with the devil. Um, uh, the. Uh, the bureaucratic form of that link is is something that has actually, you know, it it has one rendered the Labour Party very often immune to sort of rank and file organisation within the union. So it's it removed in one sense. And in fact, one of the things we can talk about actually is that is, is structures of removal. Uh, it's the thing that that links many political structures, British political structures, but American ones as well. Remember that America is set up as a republic rather than a democracy, and many of its founding fathers were rather scared of democracy. They thought democracy tended to be turbulent, very dangerous, whatever. Anyway, so the Labour Party link with the trade unions is very bureaucratic. This, in one sense, actually preserves the link for much longer than is true in most other parties of Labour uh, across the world. Uh, so there, there is the, the 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 relationship between the Labour Party and the trade unions is actually quite idiosyncratic and quite quite unique. Actually, it's a, it, you know it, it it is it is both odd uh, and uh, you know not necessarily advantageous to to the left. Very often, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's often a break on left wing policies historically in the history of the Labour Party. Uh, often a break on direct worker influence on sort of political expression, mm-hmm. but but nonetheless keeps Labour Party as a party of labour. Uh, so in that sense. Uh, this means the Conservative Party is the party that attracts big money. Uh, the uh, donations of Lord Sainsbury and, uh, to Blair are aberrant in the history of the Labour Party. Um, so this means that the Conservative Party traditional coalition of big business uh, sort of and reactionaries yeah. uh, is pretty stable. It's pretty stable. Now, it's possible that the funding changes that are going through Parliament at the moment will actually change that. It's possible that this might finally break this model of British politics and we might see a really different British politics in the next decade, one which will involve uh, massive kind of Tory dominance for a long time. That's rather terrifying for all of us, of course. Um, this, is, this, is now, this is not the case in the United States. In the United States, very different political structure. Uh, and the United States political structure, much more to do with the dialectic between... Lendrous words. Yeah, 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 I know. Let's say the, the relationship, the, the aggressive and mutually influential relationship between yeah. the federal government yeah. and what we might call local government, yeah. sort of the states, the individual yeah. states that yeah. make up the United States. Now, historically... Um, the federal government is actually a pretty weak institution. Um, and there's a very good recent book by this by a, a professor of history at Cambridge called Gary Gerstle, very American name, sort of Gerstle. Um, very good, very brilliant. The book is called Liberty and Coercion, which, is, which traces that rather long and fractious relationship between those two levels of government. And one of the reasons, you know, one of the, one of the things that happens in the formation of the United States is lots and lots of power devolved to individual states. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 
today's federal government is comparatively quite inflated and that's a consequence of the changes to international relations in the course of the 20th century mm. of greater globalization stuff like that and also security threats right like the big change is really world war 2 um historically uh, the the individual states were you know were granted what one might call or what was called in the 18th century something called police power and that's not police in the sense that we think of it today as involving sort of security and, and things like that much more to do with the the ability to pass laws to make good citizens right so you have different uh, legislative regimes in individual states mm. about uh, uh, divorce, for instance, that they're very different uh, about sort of sexual propriety, uh, about uh, gambling, uh, mm. and and most uh, most clearly about slavery. Mm. Um, and you know, part of this push pull, you know, you have the Bill of Rights, which Madison, James Madison, early founding father. Um, actually wanted all state legislatures to involve it as part of their constitution. There's a Bill of Rights that guarantees various things like habeas corpus. Um, most of the states actually don't. Uh, they, they don't incorporate it. Uh, and so the idea historically is that maybe if you if you don't like a particular regime, you can move somewhere else. This is the, the great myth about the great m- mobility of American citizens. Not entirely clear whether it's actually true. People tend to like to stay where they are and change things actually where they are. Anyway, um, you know, and so the, 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 historically the Supreme Court, which is, of course, in play now, uh, really, really uh, respectful of states' rights. It really, really didn't like intervening in them a, a great deal. It's really over, you know, uh, there, is, there is, of course, the great change um, it, after the Civil War where you, you see the, the end of slavery. Um, but really from that period until the mid-20th century, the court is very, very respectful of states' rights other than, uh, you know, outside of that. Really kind of uh, quite oblique on intervening in, ter- in things like segregation. Really only at the ki- kind of quite unusual court in the middle of the 20th century that, that tends to aggregate um, powers to itself to end things like segregation, to force integration, stuff like that. Um, federal government, of course, increases in power through the course of the 20th century. And this, this conflict, this idea, you know, th- you know uh, look, most people who talk about states' rights these days are sort of, you know, uh, uh, racists, right-wingers. But this is one of the things that is fueling a lot of the resentment within the Republican Party and lo- a lot of the resentment. Uh, yeah, go ahead. But, I mean, they're kind of right as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot yeah. of these, I mean, I, I don't like to use the word nut, but gun nuts, I mean, mm. that's what we would use, that's the word, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's not uh, gun yeah. fanatics, what do you want to call them? Um, they're kind of like, you know, talking about state rights, individual mm. liberty, these two things are mutually constitutive. In terms of the American story, that's kind of true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not yeah, a misreading of the founding absolutely, fathers. Absolutely. And it fueled 1861. I think that's when America's fall started. And like you say, those things haven't really gone away just yet. I mean, very recently we had Black Lives Matter taking down all these state flags that still have effectively mm-hmm. the Confederate flag. It was on six or seven sort of state flags until right, very recently. Right, right. Well, what's 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 really interesting is that it seems to me that that some of the goals of the civil rights movement in the course of the twentieth century were, were soluble through the form of the nation state. It's one of the reasons that that the federal government is so strong is precisely because these things, these uh, these massive grievances, the, these morally righteous and politically very powerful grievances, were able to be resolved through the nation state. It's unclear that the current grievances, so the completion of that civil rights struggle, plus a wider concern about oligarchy within American politics, about the the power of the rich, the massive power of the rich, uh, really, uh, it's not clear if it can be resolved through the nation state itself. Now, some of it certainly can be. Mm, Some of it certainly can be. The question, you know, for instance, people have been pressing and should press 
Hillary Clinton some more on whether she would reintroduce Glass-Steagall, which is an act that regulates uh, all things to do with uh, uh, speculation. It depends what day of the week you ask, yeah. isn't it? You know, like so yeah. much with that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say, a lot, a lot of people say, and it's a debate we have over here in the UK, and it's a very, again, it's a real difference now between the US and the UK, right? And uh, moving back very quickly to that idea of a coalition on the right, this is the problem UKIP now face, right? Because if you mobilise working class white antagonism to big business, which is what Red UKIP could do very well if they want these Labour seats in the northeast, Farage mm. doesn't want that. Mm. There's two wings of UKIP in terms of where they want to go here. It doesn't really make much sense. The US is kind of different, right? Because the white working class in the south before the Civil War, they they were like, I don't want the state in my life. I have a decent life. Why is that? It wasn't because of like socialism. It wasn't because the ruling classes of those particular states were particularly nice to them. It was because... Uh, the composition of class in those states was based upon slavery. So if you were a white working class person in Mississippi before, uh, or you know, Virginia before 1861, you had a certain standard of living which was premised upon you know, the Southern lifestyle, which meant that you, know, you had indentured black labour, mm. right? And they were defending that. And they were yeah. defending what they viewed as their liberty no, it sounds bizarre. That sort of <laughs> defending liberty. They want people, certain people, to be you know remain in, in indentured slavery because mm. of the color of their skin. But that's what they thought. Now, the energy is coming with Trump in terms of white working class voters. He gets these are their great grandchildren. I mean, it's as mm. simple as that. Actually, in a lot of cases, and the yeah. idea that they would go to Sanders is ridiculous because literally their subject position about liberty, their standard of living is like it's it, it's based upon what's black and brown Labour doing in the United States right now? Mm. And it's about a relative privilege vis that black Labour. And that's where their understanding of liberty comes from. And now it's being recapitulated through migration, right? Because we're in the era of globalisation. It's 2016. We're not in mid-19th century anymore. Fundamentally, these are the same issues, I think. Not much has changed since the mid-19th century. Yeah, I mean, I I think And the UK is different in this respect. Yes, the UK is different in that respect. I mean, I think think one has to look at the, the sort of changing... Uh, history of labour relations in the in the US to to really track some of these political changes. You know, it really is. I think it's. I think we often point to uh, stuff like the. the so in the nineteen thirties, there's a huge upsurge in industrial mili- mili- militancy <laughs> across manufacturing, um, and th- these are these are these are. I mean, really explosive, explosive things. They they really change. Uh, American conceptions of class and 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 you know allows much of the American working class to recognise itself as an industrial working class for the first time, mid nineteen thirties, and this the, that kind of consciousness, that kind of organisation is is what really pushes a lot of the American liberal reformism, right? I mean, it's it's there's massive explosion in in direct action at the time, um, outside of this electoral kind of this electoral politics, uh, and it's 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 you know that kind of militancy that is the precondition for something like the New Deal. Um, and that that the question of how this works. So, a very famous model uh, that you all know very well, being a social scientist, uh, of how uh, extra parliamentary contentious action mm. uh, uh, works in its relation to to, to uh, institutional actors. So things like political parties or presidential candidates. Um, presidential campaigns, uh, is the, these extra-parliamentary forces adopt a wide variety of tactics with goals. A repertoire of contention, we Indeed, call it. indeed. Yeah. Uh, Which can and, include, like, killing yeah, people. Assassinations. assassinations. Yeah, yeah. It makes it sound kind of more fluffy than it really is. 
<laughs> Repertoire of contention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, killing people. Uh, that's the top it, end, that's right? The top end. You know, the bottom end is like writing like a petition. Lobbying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so this kind of, you know, the, the, these are then, you know, and they tend to have a wide variety of goals. Yeah. You know, from from the abolition of capital to, uh, I don't know, uh, having more regular elections or something like that. So, really, really wide variety of goals tend to be involved in these movements. One of this, one of the things you can see in the Black Lives Matter movement here, um, here and in the US. Um, you know, really, really huge, wide goals from you know from reparations to uh, school funding, uh, and the role of institutional actors very often is to is to kind of take and capture some of those demands and hopefully some of the energy with it to allow them to you know. And so there's a, a mutually constitutive role between mm-hmm. these things. Um, the question for the extra parliamentary or, or the sort of grassroots activists is. <coughs> It's how to force those institutional actors, very often gatekeepers, uh, to to adopt more of their demands than than rather than less, um, because so there's a there's something of a trade off there. Um, and the question is whether that's in you know that's the only strategy. There's there's also a strategy of absolute refusal, um, which you know has has its own things going for it. An absolute absolute refusal to engage with the machine of politics. Uh, that that I think is uh, you know it's something I ha- you have to take into account. Part you know partly because it's 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 you know. It, 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 the the history of these things is a history of betrayal, of course, and a history of partiality, a history of partial completeness, partial incompleteness. Um, so, so there there is a, you know, that question of push pull there. I, I you know the history of class composition in the United States is extremely complex, uh, really deeply intertwined with race. Uh, Absolutely. Like, Again, it's another fundamental difference. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Before you have capitalism in the United States, I can't remember about the fifth show who said this. You know, why does what happen? It's two competing visions of capitalism. One isn't necessarily based upon, well, it's not. It's obviously not based upon people. Classical understanding of capitalism: Ricard, David Ricardo, Adam Smith, Karl Marx. Ask anybody. Capitalism. One of its main traits is that people sell their labour onto a market of labourers, mm. and actually, it's a pretty good way of exploiting people. Yeah. The South doesn't really get that. I mean, they think that, and the North, you know, Northern industrialists, happy as Larry, that very profitable, make lots of money. Capitalist class mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the North, they're not lovely people. They like exploiting people and making money. Differences in the South. You don't have a market of labourers selling their labour onto a market. You have slaves yeah. who do particular things. You know, yeah. there was a I mean, powerhouse of cotton exporting. And hugely important to see. It was that based on slavery labour. Slavery is a form of sort of primitive accumulation, which is a you know, Marxist jargon. Um, you know, about it's asking the question of, of how do capitalists get capital in the first place? Right. right? Um, and very often, this when talking about primitive accumulation, people talk about enclosure, so uh, acts of uh, decisive political power that grab land and resources for, for capitalists. And that then becomes capital, uh, or is via a process transformed into capital. Slavery, of course, uh, a really essential part of primitive accumulation. And, you know, capitalism growth means, you know, expanded circuits of capital. What is capital? Great question. Capital is money making money. Yeah. If you put money into a process and you go, today I've got £100, tomorrow I've got £101, that's money that's then become capital. Yeah. A system which tries to expedite that and tries to then, you know, infuse all social relations or material relations, that's capitalism. Okay. Mm-hmm. If, that's, if that's what space is subordinate to, if that's what social relations are subordinate to, if religion and faith and history and tradition and family are all subordinated to that, that's capitalism. It's kind of fundamentalism, right? So that has to constantly expand with capitalism, right? As we've seen, you have compound rates, uh, compound growth rates. Everything mm. has to grow. You know, that's why the you know two thirds of the world's biggest cities will be underwater in sixty years' time because we have to have growth. The 
the thing with the South was they didn't, they didn't have that system, right? As we said, they had slavery. So how was it going to grow? Well, this is why they were having wars with Mexico. They wanted to, you know, they wanted more land, more places they could have their slaves to grow more cotton mm. because they had a different mode of production in mind. And another, this was another major cleavage between the northern capitalist class, northern industrialists, and the south, the southerners, southern ruling class. They said, can you please stop having these wars with Mexico? You know, yeah, or the, yeah, you know yeah. we need to, we, these are our borders. Let's leave it at that. If we're going to expand or reduce them, it'll be through negotiation, not like war with our neighbors. And that was a big difference. And again, mm. that really... It's emblematic of the two modes of production which the North and the South had, and the South wasn't really capitalism as we really understand it. Yeah, I mean, to, to talk about American class composition requires that recognition. Also requires recognition of uh, the, the really, really how far the history of U.S. labor organization diverges from mm. Western Europe. Um, private sector unionizations that are peak in uh, the early fifties, nineteen fifty-three, it reaches thirty-six percent. Um, by nineteen seventy-three, it's at twenty-seven percent, and it just declines there on after um, and yet at, at that point precisely because of the structure the dominance like the dominance of the American economy it's, uh, uh, with a greatly weakened trade union the post-war boom allows um, mild sort of state-led social redistribution a little bit of uh, political liberalism um, but because the US economy is growing um, corporate profits uh, and take-home pay and social spending all go up at once so this is a settlement in boom time settlement that actually no one is having much Patriarchs of a as well, right? Yeah, yeah, much of a problem with. 70s recession, though, is really important. Mm. The 70s recession, like, uh, you know, uh, you, the rates of unionization in the US continue to decline. This is not true in Europe. It's not true in Europe. Unionization starts an uptick again, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, we see, you know, totally, totally different direction of travel for, for unions. It's no longer true. But, um, well, the peak but, is 1980, right? Yeah, yeah. 13 million. Yep, yep. Um, so, but, you know, even today, unionization rates in, in European countries re- remains far above the US peak. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, but it's not strong enough in Western Europe to, to avoid a balance in, you know, the change in the balance of class power. But it gives a different complexion to European and United States politics. Um, there are welfare politi- polities in, in, in Europe in, in a sense that there just isn't in the United States. Here's a question then. Here's a question. If you're saying all these there's these sort of the historical trajectories on which mm. the US and the European countries, let's say the EU really well, that's not true for most of the Eastern and Central European countries um, if their trajectories are so different, if they do share, particularly Britain and the US there's clearly changes in terms of racial composition Millennials are on the on the scene. The the coalition of the right is in decline. Why then is America moving left? That is indisputable. I mm. think. Mm. Look at public attitudes. Look at the Sanders presidency. You know, presidential election potentially next year. This year, rather. Due, geez, I'm losing my mind. Sorry, I gave up caffeine five days ago. November. It'll be in November the election. Clearly, America is moving left. Europe quite clearly is moving the other way. Now, you may respond to material factors. We are on the doorstep of Syria, migration, so on. You know, the US had incredible immigration from Central and South America, Mexico, for 25 years, really. Well, particularly since NAFTA, right? Since the mid-1990s. Extra North American Free Trade. North American Free Trade Association. Yes, you're right. Enough abbreviations that aren't explained. Um, so materially, they have the same problems. Yeah. So what's the reasons then, according to you anyway, between the US moving in one direction and the EU moving in the other? Because these were historically welfare states. That's in decline. Even though the US has a union movement, nothing like that in Europe. You know, for instance, 
minimum wage campaigns in the US. Far more powerful than anything in the in the EU right now. Yeah, yeah, Far yeah, more that's, powerful. That's and they're starting mobilizing. From a, starting from a lower base, though. I mean, they're mobilizing. The, thing. the it, very poorest far more effective. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. What I would say is that I don't think America is moving left. I think America is pulling apart, actually. I, th- I think there is, you know, what we haven't really talked about is, is, is that constituency of uh, enraged and impoverished um, or financially precarious, uh, largely white people, uh, largely white men. Uh, who are the Trump constituency, and and that is that you know that is as much a real phenomenon uh, as as the sort of the rise of of a left within the United States. But, I mean, Trump's not going to be the president. Uh, impossible. Well, God, I certainly hope. I mean, not. impossible. Right? I mean, it seems improbable. Florida, California, these are but but there's those people are minority now. Yeah, but there's Ted Cruz, there's Marco Rubio. Now Rubio, you know, the guy's a suit. You, yeah, I know he's a suit, but the guy's the, a suit, I, I mean, it. you know, but well, Reagan he's was a, a marionette. He's a, I mean, he's a haircut politician. Reagan, Reagan was a marionette. I mean, you know, I mean, Reagan was possibly the stupidest man to ever sit in the White House, and yet hugely successful. Um, like anyway, he had, the, he had the additional benefit of being a, an actor and charismatic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, but I mean, so it, I, I think it is. I think it is, it is an excessive simplification to say that the United States is moving left, whereas Europe is moving right. What I think we see is, is a far greater pull away from the centre. I think that's okay. that's what. But few surveys on on public attitudes on they're class. not necessarily left wing though. I mean, the, they're moving. They're, progress- they're moving on- progressive. Not necessarily left word. Okay, no left word. Progressive is so, the absolutely right word. They're moving away from what was a decades-long consensus: the moral majority. George, yeah. we that, thought, that is breaking. Now that we, is thought, breaking. We, right. we thought but. that was as strong as stone under George W. Actually, it was a kind of owl of Minerva, right? It was kind of dying. We didn't <laughs> yeah, realise yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. So, but, okay. So, so, so okay. I wonder. I wonder if if the if. So, so you think that is breaking? I think it is, I think that and you is think breaking. The US is becoming more progressive. I think it is breaking. I shall, I shall, I shall tell you that it is that it and it is becoming. Yeah, I think so. Europe I mean, isn't so, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Europe right is now. Europe is sliding into barbarism. I think that's a, I don't think that's inarguable. Um, uh, you know, that can change. That can change. I'm, I'm not a pessimist about it. That can change. Right. Require, but right now, you see people shouting at migrants coming across the border. Yeah, yeah. It requires Germany, European political children crying. But, uh, let me let me say the the the, the constituency the, the that coalition that you're talking about the, on which the the, the Bush president. This is uh, something that that starts under Nixon, I think. Right. It starts under Nixon. You know, uh, Nixon originally has to make himself sort of look a bit liberal and, and, you know, and sort of, you know, pay pay lip service to to the the great society. You know, Uh, you know, early Nixon says we are all Keynesians now. Uh, It's it's far later. Uh, You know, it takes a deepening economic crisis to win a lot of the white vote to Nixon. And then it's a little later than that. that You really start to see the base of this... um, you know, white working class men uh, in in sort of economic decline, sort of threats to patriarchal authority, um, you know, and and really going that sort of southern strategy uh, for those sort of you know. Anyway, <laughs> it, it, it becomes this kind of anti-statist, and this is where it aligns to that that sort of stuff about states' rights. So anti-statist yeah. in the sense that it's anti-federal government, a very individualist ideology, uh, really, really, really strong articulations of white supremacy, uh, really, really strong articulations of white supremacy uh, and Protestant fundamentalism. Uh, at the same time, or a little bit later, uh, under Carter, uh, and certainly under Clinton, the Dems go... Very, very pro-business. Very, very pro-business. Come to terms with neoliberalism, you know, really, really happy with it, frankly. Uh, you know, and it's really, I think, sort of post-95, 
uh, you know, huge sort of boom in stock prices. Uh, like corporations can borrow very, very easily, uh, issue hugely inflated shares. Uh, sort of really hyper boom in property property prices, as, as we know. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, real wages rise ninety seven to two thousand and one because of this, this is the blip. Yeah, since yep, the, yep. since the early seventies, it's yep, the only yep, time yep. it's actually happened. Yep, yep, yeah, yep. Uh, and and that's that 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 economic basis is the basis of, of what held that coalition together. And now that it's no longer true, mm. now we've had the crash. It doesn't it doesn't quite hold. It doesn't quite hold because you got uh, you, the, the promise doesn't work, right? Like it, there is nothing to appeal to. But like I say, in the US it's moving in one direction, in the UK it's moving in another. I mean, for instance, but look, you know, well, I, women, well, I, women, women have voted yeah. Democrat for a long time. Yeah. Last election they voted Tory. I think majority of women voted Tory, right, mm, in this mm. country. Again, I'm saying that's part of the coalition. Yep, Corbyn would have true. to win. You look at polling right now. I mean, sorry, I just want to say this. You look at polling right now. The exact same coalition Corbyn has to build to win under 35s women minorities. Mm-hmm. They hate David Cameron. This is a YouGov poll, November, December last year. Net disapproval of David Cameron. Net disapproval of the Conservative Party. Net approval of the Labour Party. Net disapproval of Jeremy Corbyn. Why is that? Mainstream media. But there's a problem there for him, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that, again, it's another kind of dissonance sort of we're seeing here between the US and yeah, the yeah. UK, the EU, yeah, is that women vote Conservative over here. And they have actually mm. done most elections, mm. I think, since the 19... Whenever they could vote, 1920, I think, right? Yeah. Fourth reform act. I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think... One of the things to say is that the, where I think you're right is that there is, well, where I think perhaps the, there is a, a unity here is the thing that gets interpreted as so-called populism by political commentators who who finds a lot of this kind of popular involvement in politics a little bit illegible actually, uh, and so so, so uh, link everyone from sort of Nigel Farage to Jeremy Corbyn to Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump in under this model of populism. So populism is everything outside, really, the political centre. <laughs> appeals to people and <laughs> sort of gets them out of things. Um, populism has a very specific resonance in American political history, incidentally. It's, it's uh, uh, political theorists in the middle of the 20th century sort of try to make it uh, sound as if uh, populism will always lead to sort of an extreme of sort of uh, authoritarianism and tyranny and whatever. Um, but there is, a, there is certainly, a, I think, an institutional political change to some extent in, in the United United States, uh, you know, in 2007, you have people like uh, Robert Brenner think, saying, you know, Rahm Emanuel is going to be the direction of the Democratic Party. Well, you know, it looked possible. That, that train's gone. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, as the mayor, guy barely know, held, held on mayor, to Chicago. Mayor of Chicago and, you know, uh, you know, really being pressured by amazing activists in Chicago. Black Lives Matter in Chicago, yeah. really, really pressing for his Pretty resignation. Pretty candidate. And... Anti and sort of damaging Clinton by her association with him. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is... I, I just want to say, Oxford English Dictionary, definition of populist. you want to hear it? Mm, go ahead. This dangerous thing, popularism, a member or adherent of political party seeking to represent the interests of ordinary people. Oh, my God! Well, I mean, this is exactly oh. the kind of nightmare that, oh, the, that, that many of the framers of the Constitution... Ordinary uh, people! <laughs> I mean, you know, remember that people, the, 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 the ruling class of the United States, when they set up... Uh, set up the constitution. Uh, we're having debates around the constitution. Um, regarded democracy as a spectacle of turbulence and contention. That's uh, direct quote from the Federalist Papers. Uh, that, you know, the, these are people who really want to ensure against democracy at all, all costs. They, they want, they need, they want mediating filters yeah. between the people and, uh, and and the creation of the law. Hence the whole electoral college system, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have got to make an announcement. Resident FM, Resident FM's annual fundraiser. Start again. 
is running from February 13th. That was six days ago. Runs to the 21st. You've got two days left. It features, it's featuring, it's present continuous, it's still happening. Nine days of live events, a spectacular online auction. I've got to give something to that. I think I'm going to give something to that. You know the Chrome Messenger bag? I'm going to give that to, to the eBay account. Check that out. As well as a whole host of special broadcasts. Resonance relies on the support of our listeners. So to help us make more amazing programming, head to resonance.fm to make a contribution now. Um, we've got to put some things to that auction, James. You're going to have to put something to that auction Gosh. James has now pulled away from doing like I said, the unicycle thing and eating fire and juggling. So uh, let me I'm, say, I'm disappointed as much as anybody else out there. <laughs> let me say let me say one thing we haven't addressed here is 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 money. And uh, historically, American elections are very very local affairs, and I think that's uh, that's 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 really you know something that 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 we haven't addressed. Really, really contested on local ground. Changes over the course of the 20th century. Um, Clinton is the big money candidate, you know, uh, and I, I, it's, it really is astonishing how much money she has behind her. In one sense, this, this contest is really a, a fight between, between these people, between, between these huge big money. You know, the, the Clinton method, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a unique thing, you know, particularly the use of sort of charitable foundations to, to grant oh, access wow. to. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, you know, Clinton has raised, you know, in 2016, you know, 77 million in direct campaign contribution plus 20 million outside money. Uh, you know, their the, their personal wealth is is through the ceiling. You know, the, the, these people are, are are rolling in it. It's really a very clear conflict between uh, b- b- between between sort of the <laughs> the pets of oligarchs and billionaires. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Clinton arranges uh, access for the American uh, Canadian. Uh, billionaire Frank Justra to uh, to Kazakh business interests. Uh, you know the, these people. The, you know, they, uh, By which you mean relatives of Nureyev? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I want to say um, I think what's it in November, December, just before Christmas, actually. George Soros gave six million dollars to one of Hillary's pack super mm-hmm. packs in two thousand eight. It was called Hill Pack. It's now called something else. I don't know what it's called. Hill Pack was quite catchy, right? Mm. Now he gave what was it? He gave six million dollars to her super pack. That's it. Priorities USA. Now you may have heard this, these numbers being given out by the Sanders pretty much any time you see him on YouTube. He says the average donation is twenty seven dollars. Actually, twenty six dollars twenty eight cents. Um, so that one donation by George Soros was the equivalent of 228,000 Sanders supporters giving $26.28. Yeah, I mean... The, and he's polling above her nationally. You know the, you know the what goal... The, I mean, you'd have to, be, you'd have to be Hillary Clinton to go, I'm the best connected politician in America, probably about 30 years to go for this. I've got, more, I've got money come out of my ears, and this schmuck from Vermont, he's 74, he's not only beating me, he's playing basketball after he's done it. Wow! Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she'd be like, "What have I got to do?" <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, um, just to say, I mean, her her aim is to to raise a billion dollars for her super PAC in the twenty sixteen election. Billion. dollars. The sad thing for Hillary is she has to win. And the thing is, you have to win an election. the The objective isn't to raise the most money. <laughs> it's not like venture capital, you know, like we're trying to raise money. She has to win the election. They're different things. Sorry, my... Uh, my Often they're um, congruent, right? But now that's changing. We've got two minutes left. Some yeah. concluding thoughts. Yeah, well, look, uh, I am I am sceptical of the Sanders possibility, but I think one of the things to uh, one of the things to use here is to look at these things as barometers of changing political uh, uh, political 
structure, you know, across Western democracies. This massive conflict that uh, cannot perhaps be resolved in a single nation state between what is becoming sort of you know, the relationship of uh, essentially you know, America is an oligarchy. That, you know, but but that, that conflict between massive, massive inequality uh, and those dispossessed is something that stretches across, uh, certainly, certainly across the developed world and indeed exists globally. That's the conflict uh, at play in American politics at the moment. And I think it's pretty, pretty fundamental. For me, the, the big right wing coalition that propped up Thatcher, Reagan, George W., George Bush, you know, even David Cameron. All the way up to him right now, that's collapsing. It's going to take a little bit longer over here. It's probably going to take another five, ten years here in the UK. Question is, can the left over here in the US, can it build a different kind of coalition appealing to different interests, building a different kind of society? My name is Aaron Bastani, James Butler. This is Navarro Media. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.